we live in a fallen world that is filled with sin that manifests itself in a variety of ways. One manifestation of that sin is sexual abuse. We are hearing a great deal about sexual abuse in our society. We are becoming more aware of how often it takes place, and we are becoming much more sensitive to it. We're also learning about the long-lasting, devastating effects that sexual abuse has upon the victim. That is very helpful and important that we gain that insight. We need to be developing an ever-increasing understanding of sexual abuse and the compassion that we are to have for those who are abused. We need to understand how it happens, why it happens, and the effect that it has upon its victims. However, sexual abuse is not new to our age. It isn't something that has just occurred in these last 30 years. Sexual abuse has been with us since the time of the fall. Nor are we left to discover on our own the horrors of sexual abuse. It's not as though the Bible is unaware of the events and the circumstances that take place. The Bible, in fact, speaks with great clarity concerning the horrors and issues of sexual abuse. This morning, we're in a rather disturbing portion of Scripture. We are brought face-to-face with a tragic example of sexual abuse. What is revealed is an incident of rape. The scriptures are not vulgar, but they are candid in their depiction, in their depictions. We have a clear view of what takes place. I submit to you this is a heart-wrenching text, and if you allow yourself to take it all in, I am almost certain there are going to be moments that you are going to feel very uncomfortable. But know that the scriptures contain these events for a reason. It's important that we understand the realities of life, and extremely important that we understand them from a biblical perspective, that we understand what the Bible has to say about the issues that are so prevalent before us. We must learn all that this narrative has to tell us. We have in this account both the perspective of the victim as well as the abuser. And that's how I'm going to approach the text this morning. First looking at the perpetrator of sexual abuse and then the victim of sexual abuse. So we begin by looking at the perpetrator of sexual abuse, namely Amnon. So what do we learn about him? Well, first we learn that he's one of David's sons, in verse 1 of chapter 13. Amnon, David's son. We learn that Amnon's victim would be his half-sister, namely Tamar. For it tells us in verse 1 that he had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. We learn that Amnon had an unhealthy preoccupation with sex. Absalom was infatuated with Tamar. He could not get her out of his mind. She was beautiful, according to verse 1, and he was crazy about her. It tells us in verse 1 that he loved her, and verse 2, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. Now, when the scriptures say that he loved her, we discover that that love is really a lust. 
an extreme desire for Tamar. And what was driving him crazy was that he wanted to have a sexual relationship with her, and he couldn't. If you look at verse 2, it says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. And here's the reason, for she was a virgin. She was a virgin. She never had a sexual relationship with anyone, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. He didn't see any way that he could have his sexual desires gratified. And so it drove him crazy. Amnon had an unfiltered and unchecked thought life. He just allowed himself to to dwell on these thoughts. He came to view his half-sister as a sex object. He became frustrated or he saw no means to gratify his sexual desires. Next, we learn that Amnon turned to the wrong place for guidance. Amnon had a friend who was a conniving schemer. In verse 3, it says, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, meaning that he was a schemer, meaning that Joab knew how to get what he wanted at any cost. And Amnon confided in this friend, verse 4. And Amnon said to him, O son of the king, why are you so uh, haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And so now Amnon's friend Jonadab gives him some very ungodly advice. Verse 5. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So he was laying out a plot for Amnon to have his way with his our sister. This teaches us that we must be very, very careful regarding the people from whom we get advice. Obviously, this was very bad advice, very ungodly advice. And we learn next that Amnon put a sinful plan into place that would gratify his sexual desires. And now we focus on the elements of that plan. The first element was that Amnon planned to deceive others. It started with Amnon deceiving his father. Verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him and said, oh, excuse me, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Verse 7, then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare for him. David, unfortunately, unwittingly, becomes an accomplice of Amnon. That is not David's intent. David is deceived. But he's going to be used 
of Amnon and is going to be a part of all that takes place. Amnon deceived Tamar herself. Tamar went innocently to Amnon's home, and we need to keep that in our thinking. Amnon went innocently to Amnon's house. If you look at verse 8, so Tamar went to her brother's house where he was lying down. I cannot stress enough how faultless and blameless Tamar is in this situation. And this is going to be repeated time and time again as we look at this account. Tamar does nothing wrong. You can't even say that she exercised poor judgment in going to Amnon's house, for it was David who sent her there. It isn't just that she decided to go, but she is there at David's direction. Verse 7. So then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to her brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. She then proceeded to take care of Amnon in his feigned illness. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. So the plan included deception. The plan also included to put Tamar in a very vulnerable position, verse 9. She took the pan and emptied it before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Amnon made sure that there would be no one present to whom Tamar could appeal for help. He devised a scheme in which he knew that she would be helpless. There would be no one to appeal to, no one to come to her aid, no one to thwart Amnon's desire. The third element of this plan was a refusal to take no for an answer. Amnon extends an invitation to Tamar to have sex with him, verses 10 and 11. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the, the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them in to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. So he grabs a hold of her and says, Come and lie with me. Come and have sex with me. Tamar clearly says no and refuses these advances. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother. No. Tamar also understands where this situation is headed. Remember, Amnon has a firm hold on her, and she plainly says, do not rape me. Do not rape me. Verse 12. She answered him, no, my brother, 
do not violate me. And I mean, he translates that, don't force me. She could not have said it more forcefully or more clearly, that she would not be a willing participant, that she is not in any way agreeing to, giving consent to what is about to take place. And she is willing to call it what it is and tries to shock him by saying, don't rape me, so that he would understand exactly what he is doing and how unwanted were his advances. Then she tries to reason with Amnon and gives him a multiple list of reasons why he should not do this. Let's go through these reasons. He's trying to present to Amnon a case as to why he should not rape her. The first is because it would be wrong as a person of the people of God. Verse 12. No, my brother, do not violate me. Reason number one, for such a thing is not done in Israel. This isn't what we are about as a people of God. This is not how we conduct ourselves. This is not what is going to bring honor and glory to God. This is foreign to us. This is unacceptable behavior. Secondly, because it is a wicked and willful sin. Notice the end of verse 12. Do not this outrageous thing. The uh, NIV translates that, don't do this wicked thing. This was something that was abominable. It was detestable. This was horrific. Amnon, think about what you're doing. Thirdly, because if Amnon cared about her at all, if there was even a lick of concern for Tamar, he wouldn't do this. Verse 13, as for me, where could I carry my shame? Think about the effects that this is going to have on me. Think about what you're about to do and the ramifications for me in my life. But he's indifferent. He doesn't care. He's, he's not concerned about this one that he's supposed to be loving. And, and this is certainly not a loving response. He is indifferent to her. Fourthly, because of the, of, if the disgrace that would, would uh, fourthly, because if you don't care about me, at least think about yourself. You're going to be disgraced, Amnon, verse 13. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. You're going to destroy your reputation. You're, you're going to you're going to be viewed as one of the worst individuals in the land. People are going to talk about you. You're going to destroy any shred of a reputation that you have. And then, fifthly and lastly, because there's an alternative. There's an alternative. We start off by saying that 
Amnon was sick because he said it was impossible for him to have any kind of relationship with her. So he comes up with this ungodly scheme that was concocted by his friend. And she says to him, there, there's an alternative. Look at the end of verse 13. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. There's an alternative. You can ask the king. The king will give you to me. That may seem like a strange thought, but I would just remind you that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. In Genesis 20, 11, and 12, Abraham said, I did it because I, th- I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And so Abraham and Sarah were half brother and sister and were married. And so here, she's just saying, there's an alternative. There's an alternative. All these things we need to keep in mind. However, her pleas fall on deaf ears. Samnon, Amnon was unwilling to listen to reason. Five different bases that she appeals to to say, don't do this. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. He would not listen to her. And so, he forcefully raped her. Verse 14. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, which has this connotation, she resisted, she put up a fight, she didn't want this to happen, but he was stronger than she was, and he violated and lay with her. And the NIV says it as clearly as I've been saying it all along. The NIV translates it, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. He raped her. It's really, really tragic. And I'm going to be making application, but I'm saving it for the end. I just want you to see what has taken place. That was the action of the perpetrator. Now I want us to focus on the victim, on Tamar. And to take a close look at all that she endured and would have to further endure. First, looking back over the story, we see that she's trapped in verses 5 to 11. She was innocently placed in a situation from which there was no escape. She was helpless. She had no place to turn. No screams for help would have been heard. She could not escape what was happening to her. He had a hold of her, and he was stronger than she was. He was helpless. He was helpless. Secondly, we see that her pleas to her predator to stop were ignored. Verses 11 and 12. 
But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. And then gives these four reasons as to why he shouldn't. In verse 14, but he would not listen to her. He would not listen to her. See here the willful and selfish desires of Amnon. See that he puts himself and his lusts over anything that she feels or thinks. He won't listen to reason. He won't back off. He won't take no for an answer. He's going to do what he's going to do. Regardless. Regardless. Third, we find that Tamar was indeed forcefully raped in verse 14. This was not consensual in any way. End of verse 14, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. She had done all that she could do to prevent it. She had said no. She tried to reason with her attacker. She physically resisted, all to no avail. All to no avail. Think of what must have been going through her mind. And we don't have to even wonder at some of the thoughts as we see the reasoning that she put forth. Next, Tamar is then despised by her abuser. What is truly odd and egregious is that now, as before she was an object of his lust, now she becomes the object of his hatred. Amnon turns against her with a ferociousness. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had for her. He had been so infatuated, he couldn't get the thought of her out of his mind, and now, He can't even begin to look at her. He wants nothing to do with her. He doesn't want to think about her. So now, Tamar has to endure the further suffering and abuse that comes after the rape. Amnon's abuse of Tamar does not end here. First, she is cruelly discarded and mistreated. Amnon speaks to her harshly. Verse 15, And Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up! Go! Think about that. Just having been through this ordeal, and when it's over, he says, Get up! Go! Get out of here! He further abused Tamar by failing to see any 
responsibility in what had happened to her and refuses to help her in any way. He does not provide any comfort. He does not provide any support and gives her no hope. Verse 16. She said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. In her mind, in her eyes, the rejection that he is now showing to her is worse than the rape itself. This is worse. You're just sending me away, wanting nothing to do with me, not showing me any love, any support. Maybe she hoped that in some, some twisted way that he did love her, that at least he had some feelings for her. But she comes to realize that she was just an object for Amnon's sinful desires, now to be discarded. He wants to linger to reason with Amnon that he would come to his senses. She's hoping that he will begin to realize what he's done and the effect that it has upon her. Amnon then has Tamar forcefully thrown out of, of Amnon's house. Amnon calls his servant to throw her out of the house, verse 17. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence. No longer the tender words, my sister, that he used when he had grabbed her. Now she becomes this woman. And so with disdain, says, get her out of my sight. I don't want to see her. Remove her from my presence. I don't want to hear anything else from this woman. In verse 18, his servant put her out. She's thrown out of the house. And Tamar is denied any access or recourse to Amnon. Verse 17. Called the young men who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence. Now this, and bolt the door after her. Lock the door. Make sure that she doesn't come in here again. Make it clear that she's unwanted. Demonstrate the fact that I'm not going to have anything to do with her. He was bringing this to an end. In essence, don't ever come back. I don't want to hear from you. I want nothing to do with you. He locks the door. What I want you to see is that the result of all of this is that Tamar is scarred for life. Let me say that again. Tamar is scarred for life. This one incident has lasting, terrible effects. It begins with Tamar's continued humiliation in verses 18 and 19. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her, as he was instructed to do. In verse 19, And Tamar put ashes on her head, 
and tore the long robe that she wore. Second, it continues with her emotional suffering. Verse 19. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. This tearing of her clothes, the clothes that depicted her virginity, these tearing of her clothes, this putting ashes on herself, her weeping was consistent with the way in which one would respond to the death of a loved one. Oftentimes in mourning, someone would rent their clothes and put on ashes. She responded as one that had died. There is an element of her that is dead, that was lost forever, that was taken from her that she could never gain back. It was gone forever. Gone forever. Third, Tamar was further scarred through additional mistreatment when the incident was discovered. She does not receive the support that she deserves and needs. And I really want you to take this in because it's really quite graphic. When Absalom sees Tamar, he knows that there's something wrong, and it's easy for him to put two and two together. The torn clothes representing her virginity, the ashes on her face, her weeping. So he asks the question in verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? He lays it out there. It's quite obvious. He doesn't have to say a word. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But notice Absalom's response to her and all that she has gone through. It is appalling. There is so little compassion, no comfort, no understanding of what she has experienced and is experiencing. Instead, he silenced her for the sake of the family's reputation. Let me say that again. He silenced her for the sake of the family's reputation. Notice verse 20. The brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. Now hold your peace. In essence, don't say anything. Be quiet. Don't speak out. Why shouldn't she say anything? Well, it's told us in verse 20. Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. He's your brother. She 
is told that she needs to take into consideration that the one who perpetrated this was her, was her brother. Well, where was his understanding that this was his sister? The fact that Amnon was her brother did not mitigate the situation. It made it worse. It made it worse. Here was her own brother that had done this to her. Take into consideration, this is your brother. There's where the lack of compassion, there's where the lack of understanding. Doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. The conduct was all the more inexcusable. He tells Tamar to just put it out of her mind. Just get over it. And look at these next words. Do not take this to heart. Do not take this to heart. In the last couple of weeks, I've just been dwelling on those words. What does that convey? How can you understand that? How can I explain that? Don't take it to heart. Don't take it seriously. (laughs) Don't let this bother you. Don't be upset. Don't take it to heart. How could she not take it to heart? How could you say that to somebody? That this is okay. It's not okay. Don't take it to heart. You'll get over it. It'll be okay. Don't blow it out of proportion. She's not the one that's blowing it out of proportion. He's minimalizing all that has taken place. Now, this is just a horrible response, and I think you get that, and you think that, and I recognize this is a horrible response. And at the same time, and here, here is the real mystery to life. These conflicting kinds of emotions that people have. Not knowing how to respond to a situation and knowing what to say, what to do. Life is complex. Life is hard. And there are no great responses to, to sin. There's No easy course of action to take place. Amnon is indeed touched by what happens. He isn't so callous that he's totally clueless. Doesn't do the best by any means, but he's not totally clueless. 
And I submit to you we know that for two reasons. It tells us in verse 22 that Absalom's, but Absalom spoke to Ammon neither good nor bad. But Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. So he wasn't indifferent to the situation. He hated Amnon for what he had done. And he just refused to speak to him after that. Absalom eventually murders Amnon for what Amnon had done, verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, do not fear, I will not command you, be courageous and be valiant. And so two years later, he has Amnon murdered. So he's not indifferent. That's not the right response either, and I'll talk about that in my application. But he's bothered by what takes place. And there is one tender action that he does. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 27, and this is really, really easy to ignore, because you know, when we look at these genealogies and all that stuff, we've been talking about how easy it is to jump over all that stuff. But in 2 Samuel 14, 27, we're, we're just given this little statement. There was born to Absalom three sons, and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Absalom named his daughter after his sister Tamar. He must have had some respect. Maybe this was his way of saying, in a way you have an ear, I don't know, but, but, it, but, but it's, a, it's a tender action. That says he wanted his daughter to be associated with Tamar. It says that he's not just totally abandoning her, wants nothing to do with her. And yet, Tamar was further scarred by, in her mind, being complete and totally abandoned. Look at the end of verse 20 of chapter 13. So, Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. He provided for her. He watched over her. He protected her. But she was desolate. Desolate. That word for desolate has the connotation of being completely alone. Completely alone. Yes, she's in his house. but all alone. She never married, 
She had no family, which I think is one of the contributing factors to Absalom naming his own daughter after her. She was living with a brother who did not understand and who did not know how to comfort her. And he's dealing with his own issues because he's so mad he could kill her. And eventually he does. She was all alone. I believe this is given to us for a lot of reasons, and one of them is so that we might better understand what someone who is a victim of sexual abuse goes through. So we're not among those that say, get over it. It's no big deal, don't blow it out of proportion. No, it has lasting effects. What are the results? Well, first of all, in the life of the family. David the king and father responds in anger and inactivity. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. He was very angry. But as I tried to think through this passage, one of the questions I had was, what was he angry about? He was very angry. But what was he angry about? Was he angry because... He was deceived and taken advantage of, and was he angry because of unwittingly be a part of this? Was he angry because this was his son and he had done such a thing? Was he angry because of the hurt and the heartache that Tamar was experiencing? I don't know. I don't know. He was angered, but he didn't do anything about it. He's the king. He's responsible for justice. He never addresses it. Never deals with it. And that's going to have lasting effects on his kingship and his kingdom. All that will be unfolded in the weeks to come. Absalom responds with a seeding and growing hatred. Absalom refused to talk to Amnon, verse 22. He's unwilling to confront Absalom, and eventually he kills him. The family strife that is present is going to have a tremendous consequence for the kingdom and for the nation. What are some of the important takeaways from this passage? Well, first of all, let me say, and there are, there are quite a few takeaways. There's so many different ways that you could approach these applications. But the first is the, the perversion that we ought to abhor. We, we, ought to, we ought to just treat back from this. I've been very blunt this morning, and because I want us to be shocked. I, I want us to look at this passage and go, wow. We should never minimize we, we, we should never lose sight of what she calls a wicked and outrageous event that should never take place in Israel. So the first is that we should be abhorred. The second is we should look at the responses that are to be avoided. And all of these responses are bad. Amnon lust 
without restraint. I say to the guys of all ages, and I'm kind of sorry that the teens aren't here this morning, but guys of all ages, look at the course of, that you are upon. Do you have an unhealthy preoccupation with sex? Are you deceiving others in lying about your relationship so that you can be alone and do things that you know that others would not approve of? Do you create situations in order for your sinful desires to be fulfilled? Are you ever unwilling to take no for an answer? Pushing people to do things that they are uncomfortable with things that they don't want to do. And out of the guise of loving, try to persuade people to give in to your own desires. Jonadab was cunning without principle, a conniver, a schemer. David had anger without justice. It's not enough to be angry. You need to be just. Absalom, hatred without restraint. Thirdly, what are we to learn from Tamar? Well, are we willing to try and understand the pain and heartache that one is experiencing who is the victim of sexual abuse? Are we willing to try to enter into their grief? Do we understand that there are people who are suffering in silence, who feel all alone and abandoned? And I ask myself, how can we minister to those who are suffering from sexual abuse if we don't even know who they are? If they indeed are suffering in silence, how do you minister to someone who is suffering in silence? Well, one thing I think that we can do is to be very guarded in the way in which we talk about sexual abuse. The, the way we talk about the things that take place in our society. And unfortunately, we can assume that if we are in a large gathering, a gathering of almost any size, that somebody is going to be present that's been abused. That's how prevalent it is. We may not know it. We may not realize it. But there will be people who have been abused. And we can't be naive to that. We can't be ignorant of that. We can't close our eyes to that. That's inside the church and outside the church. It's just a reality. And so we need to be sensitive to what we say and do. Guard our comments about abuse, be sensitive to what others may be going through. Maintain a godly and Christian perspective that can't be tainted by the world's cynicism. Be careful as you enter into discussions about the hashtag MeToo movement and all those kind of things at work. Be sure you have a biblical perspective. Be sure you're responding in the way that the scriptures would have us respond. Be sure we're doing what's right. And what can we learn from David? 
Well, we can ask ourselves, how can we guard against being innocent contributors to sexual abuse? David is taken advantage of. David is deceived. David is naive. He takes what Absalom says on face value. Excuse me, what Amnon says on face value. Amnon says, I'm sick. David, send my sister to the house. Take care of him. He sends her over there. He doesn't suspect. He doesn't think it's going to happen. Although David himself should understand issues of sexual temptation, etc. But he unwittingly participates. So I beg of you that we don't become unwitting facilitators. That we don't contribute to people being alone. Of people being in situations where they can take advantage of others. It's important that we provide a safe and protective environment. That we establish principles. That we establish rules. That we require a certain conduct. And we make sure that in the setting of the church that we're going to guard people and protect them and support having positions that will make sure that people can't be alone and do things that would be horrendous. Talk to your children about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate behavior. About saying no. About how to respond. If someone who has been abused does approach you, seek to be understanding, listen to what they have to say, try to empathize, enter into their hurt. One last appeal. People of all ages, let us treat women with dignity and respect. guard our hearts and minds in the way in which we look at and think about people of the opposite sex. May we act in a godly manner. And may we be sure that any unwelcomed advances at any level will be avoided. That we understand that no means no. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. And yes, Lord, even a a passage that is as difficult as this. And yet, Lord, we realize that we need your grace. We, We need your comfort. We need your strength. We need your restraint. Lord, I first of all pray you would guard our own hearts in the way in which we respond to others. And unfortunately, it's not even just to the opposite sex. Sometimes people of the same sex have the wrong desires and attitudes towards one another. 
But, oh, Lord, help us to have pure minds. Guard us in where we go for our instruction and our support. Lord, guard us that we would not be allowing ourselves to be unchecked in our thought life. That even as Amnon began this road because of the way in which he thought, Lord, guard our thoughts, not just our actions. Oh Lord, give us wisdom as parents to know how to guard our children, decisions that are made, where we allow them to go, not to go, where we send them and don't send them. The predicaments we place them in or, Lord, the places that we spare them from. Help us. Help us. Help us as a church that we be a restorative place that where people feel all alone, that there would be those that they could open up to and share their innermost hurts that are going to be supported, that are going to be understood, that are going to be encouraged. And Lord, give us a desire to protect our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, give us that desire to limit our own freedoms in order to protect others. Help us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.